are in a uh, passage that is uh, difficult. <clears throat> it's difficult. To, last week was difficult with adultery and lust, and this week is difficult with uh, divorce and uh, some remarriage. And we won't answer every question that everybody has in this room regarding the topic, but we're going to look at it in regards to how Jesus is teaching on it in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. It was said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Before we dive in, can we pray for this? Uh, Father, uh, the uncomfortable reality of divorce affects everyone in this room in some way. Uh, We've all seen it, been hurt by it. Uh, changed by it. So as we read today and hear today from your word, we want to approach it uh, soberly, but also in need of your grace, uh, because as we look at our lives, we realize how different our ways are from your ways, and our heart is from your heart. And so grant us the grace to hear this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It doesn't take long to hear the pretty... uh, pretty normal and culturally, not culturally, but also just research-wise accepted stat, uh, that roughly 50% of marriages end in divorce. So roughly 50%. It's a pretty steady number. Um, And a greater percentage of remarriages end in divorce, and a greater percentage of re-remarriages end in divorce. And so uh, that's, that's there. And so it isn't when we talk about divorce on a morning like this morning that we're talking about something that other people have problems with. Like, well, that's their problem. Uh, that's, that's something they have to deal with. We don't have to deal with that. I don't have to deal with that. I'm still married to my first spouse. Um, but it's not out there, and you don't even have to lift a hand. I'm already confident of this. Everybody in this room has been affected by divorce. Everybody in this room. Be it your own, your parents, your friends, your children, uh, somebody you know in your church family, everyone in this room, everyone has been affected by it and will be affected by it again. Like that's, that's, that's our reality. And so what's funny is that on the topic of divorce and remarriage, uh, maybe more than other sins and sinful situations, it's uh, we want to really be sure we can understand it the right way. Well, if we can just check the boxes and go, well, did it happen for this reason, or did it happen for that reason, or did it happen for that reason? And we have all our views, right? Well, are you a permanence view, or are you impermanence? Are you this, or are you that? Um, what's your view here? How do you take Jesus' teaching in uh, Mark and Luke is different from Jesus', uh, Jesus teaching in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19? Uh, how do you handle what the Old Testament said about it? How do you handle this? And what do you view here? And here's an article I read from this person. And here's an article I read from that person. And here's a teaching from this person. And here's a teaching from this person. And we get all these things kind of piled up together. And here's our reality. Regardless of where we land on the choose-your-own-adventure, sometimes outfields, on the trail of decisions as to how divorce works in the Lord's eyes or remarriage. Regardless of how you land, the pastoral reality is you still have to deal with it, that it still exists. And so 
you still have to navigate that world regardless if you go, well, you know, just close bookcase, we're permanents, that's it. Uh, so, okay, great. So you're just going to run around and tell everybody that they're in illegitimate marriages and their best decision is to go divorce their current spouse and go find the other one, even if it's been 30 years and uh, grandkids? Like, is that, is that, is that how we're going to go? So regardless of how you, how you land on specifics of this, everybody still has to handle it. And everybody still has to see people go through it. Um, and so there's one thing to feel like we get our answers in line. And there's the other that goes, well, what happens when the world around you doesn't align with your answers? And how do you love people and talk to them and minister to them? And so some people have even said, we've talked about it briefly before in elders meetings, like I'd, it seems like it's easier to be a murderer than it is to be divorced. Like d- divorce is the scarlet letter that you wear. And you can't get out of it. You're stuck with it forever. But if I murder somebody, well, that's great, right? So like, I can, I can at least feel, be restored for that. But I walk around as a divorced person, and I'm, I'm stuck. And there is absolutely a stigma attached to divorce that is different than others. And I don't, I don't mind that in some ways, meaning it's a serious thing to mar what God has put in this world to reflect him to the world, right? Like, like it's a serious thing to change that and to hinder that and to try and separate that. So it's a very serious thing, and the consequences of going through with it are also very serious. So it's a weighty sin, and it's a heavy situation. But it's also unfortunate that we, we, we lose grace around certain things, usually the things that we ourselves haven't dealt with, things that we haven't necessarily firsthand experienced, but we're kind of related to it. So it's much easier uh, to be gracious with people who have stumbled as you have stumbled and to be really harsh with those who stumble like you don't. It's always easier for us to go that route. And I, just to be honest, as a moment of pastoral confession, uh, I really don't like teaching on this topic, ever. It's just not fun. Unless you're in a room full of people who agree with you, and then it's great. But you never find that at a church. Uh, like, you can preach on basically any topic, and you're going to get the email afterwards. It's like, well, you know, I've read it like this. So this is at least in my pastor life the third time that I've preached specifically on Jesus' statements on divorce. Three times out of 10 or 11 years doesn't seem like a lot, but I tell you what, these sermons are like dog years. Like you preach one of them, and it's like you preached 30 of them. Uh, so this is now my 90th is kind of how I feel on the topic because of just what it, how it weighs on you as you talk about it. But it's also because of this. Our view of Scripture and how it speaks to the situation varies. It varies. Number one. Number two, our culture affects how we handle this. We don't often think that, but it does. When half of marriages end in divorce, it changes how you think about marriage and divorce. And then third, the other thing that affects it is our own experience. So how we handle scripture, what we see around us, and what we have personally dealt with 
all get thrown together into the topic of divorce as we try to live with it in our church lives. What we've seen, what we've experienced, how we've counseled folks, what we've learned, how we've adjusted, all of those things change how we enter into the topic. And so I am not uh, so foolish to think that anyone comes into this room without some type of lens already placed over their eyes upon the way that we're going to have this conversation. We all come at it with something, and that's okay. We need to approach this morning with a significant amount of humility and also with a desire to hear what we see. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember this. And in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about an external application of the law, and then he moves it to the heart. Right? So that's what his flow is. Hey, you've heard it said like this, but I'm going to say it like that. That's why I say we're not going to get into a total biblical theology of divorce. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, and why Matthew chapter 5 is where it is in Matthew, and what are we doing with it. And so what we're going to look at is how our approach, or how does divorce and our approach to it, what does it reveal about our hearts? How does it show what's going on in here, and what do we do about it? And so we're going to begin, it's just two verses, right? You go, two verses, that's easy. False, two verses. You know, sometimes you'd rather have 300 that's like, oh yeah, well, you know, love God. Uh, but it's like two verses, and you know, that's almost too many for a topic like this sometimes. But we're going to begin in verse 31, and we see what Jesus is quoting. He's quoting this idea that a a man can divorce his wife by following the right rules. A man can divorce his wife by following the right rules. You just do it right, and you're good. Be sure you follow the rules, and and you're approved. Rules are a common theme at this point in the passage. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And all you've heard it says are about this external application of being sure you check a box and you do it right. As long as you do it right, you're good. And he's going to go deeper and say, that's actually not good enough. Rules are a common theme throughout Matthew 5, and divorce is a common theme in our culture. So first thing I want to do is talk briefly about marriage. God created marriage between one man and one woman. It was an institute created by God, not by us, right? God did it. You heard that in the video with Ben. You know, that God put man and woman together, Adam and Eve together. That God created the institution. Man did not create it. God defines the institution. Man does not define it. There's a book called God, Marriage, and Family by uh, Kossenberger, I believe, or he's one of the writers, authors of it. And he defines different views of marriage, and he has one called a covenant view of marriage, which I think is helpful for us. But he says like this, it's a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by, publicly entered into before God. Whether or not this is acknowledged by the married couple, meaning that God created it, it's God's ordinance, not man's. Normally consummated by sexual intercourse is how he would actually say that. So this is generally how the covenant of marriage has been viewed. That's the uh, definition that he'll use throughout. So divorce then breaks the covenant, separates out the covenant. It speaks to trying to abolish something that God has done. And this has happened forever. I mean, the reason that there's even law given to it, language given to it in the Old Testament is because it was happening. And so this is, this is not something that's just now shown up on the scene. Uh, this is something that has always existed, the breaking of a covenant. So now, Matthew 5.31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, what's he citing? 
He's quoted from the Ten Commandments so far, but he isn't actually doing that in this passage. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 reads like this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds uh, no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house, and she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she has also, or has she been defiled, been with another man. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God, uh, your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So he gives you, he quotes you from Deuteronomy 24, that if you find some indecency in your spouse, and this is the language we've been used right now is, is uh, man-centric, because that's the, the way that Jesus is speaking about it. In Mark, he actually, Mark chapter 10, he talks about men and women, uh, more fully. We, we did that sermon last year. Uh, Mark chapter 10, he does that. I think maybe Mark's audience is a little different in their approach too. So Mark is addressing both men and women. But right now he's talking about the heart issue. They read Deuteronomy 24. Uh, different, uh, different schools would land in different spots, different rabbi schools. So one school, the school of Hillel, would say, based on Deuteronomy 24, you could divorce your spouse, your wife, for almost any reason. That was his school, right? So it's the same thing that happens, right? You also have like a, a, a liberal interpretation of an idea. Uh, you know, what, what, how can we fill the most things with that idea of indecency? And you have a much tighter view on the other side. So the same thing was happening even in Jesus' time. That there was a school of thought that said, really, indecency could be for anything, almost any reason. If the temperature of the soup was too cold, uh, or you didn't like the way that she looked at you, or uh, you just found something to be bothered by, that that would be a sufficient reason. All you have to do is get the certificate and give the certificate to your wife, and you are now divorced. Then there was another school, the school of Shammai, and would say that you have to only have it fit into the strictest of situations. A really, really tight box. And then you can and potentially even should. And here we are today, and we have a, a fairly similar spectrum, even in the church, on what's going on here. Right? We have people go, well, really, in a world of no-fault divorce, which is what we have, then then you can file at any given time, and you're good. And then on the other side, it's like, no, 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 no. In fact, I don't know if Texas has this. I've talked maybe before in Louisiana. Uh, they, you can go through what's called a, a covenant marriage, which still gets you married, uh, but you have to go through some more stuff on the front end, and then like more counseling. Uh, pastor has to sign off that you went through it, and then it makes getting out of your marriage more difficult. And so they have, a, they have an approach that they use in Louisiana, which is one of the cool things, in a sense, I'll say cool this way, like about like, the way Catholic culture has influenced even uh, law decisions in Louisiana. So some people would do covenant marriages, and I'd have to do more counseling, and I'd have to sign off and say, yes, this couple did this type of counseling with me. And it's all about making it difficult to leave. That's actually the approach. And so they kind of bind you together and make leaving harder. Uh, and so, if you ask, did Courtney and I do that? We didn't. Uh, I was like, well, my word, you know, yes be yes and no be no, I'm married to you. Uh, so, that's good, but uh, I don't think I've done anything that she has found indecent thus far, so I've gotten no certificates, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, binding it together. So, much of the world, 
and Christians, what we try to do is be sure, and this is what happens in our heart, be sure that our situation was good enough. We start to go, uh, when we talk to people who are considering divorce, who have gone through it, or we ourselves have this decision before us, or maybe you've been in a fight with your spouse and you've actually used the word, you know, maybe we should just get divorced. You've said something like that, or whatever it might be. It's funny what we start to do is because we start to go back to the Matthew 5.31 idea of trying to be sure we check the box. Here's an example. You and your spouse have separated. And honestly, you, even as a believer, you're just tired of being married. You're tired of trying to stay in it. You're tired of fighting for it. And so you hear your spouse has potentially been unfaithful. And you think, yes, I got my out. I've got my out, right? In Matthew 5, 32, there's a little clause. So you go, I've got my out. I'm good now. Now, man, praise God that there was that thing in there. Now I have my way out. Be sure you check a box. Or you're a believer and you marry an unbeliever. Do it like that. And you're now realizing maybe what the phrase unequally yoked means more significantly than you had realized it prior. Your spouse is willing to remain in the marriage. Your unbelieving spouse is willing to remain. But now you feel like you shouldn't remain. Now there is another kind of stipulation, I'll use that word in 1 Corinthians called abandonment, where an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse. But sometimes we try and muck it up and go, well, I'm really claiming spiritual abandonment or emotional abandonment. Or, uh, you know, we live in the house, we don't even, we're not even really married anymore. Don't even, really, there's, there's, nothing, there's no marriage here. And so as a believer, we hear that, we go, no, I'm out. I'm out, I want to be out. Like, I'm going to claim this as an abandonment case because I feel abandoned. Our marriage isn't, isn't giving me life. It isn't, you know, my husband can't lead me because he's not a believer, and so I'm not being led like I deserve to be led. But it's interesting that even the scriptures give language for that. And I'm, I know people who have stayed in their marriage to unbelieving men. Because the unbelieving man not, has no plans on leaving the marriage. And so they remain in it. But we go, well, I need an out. I need, a, I need, I need to find something to claim. When we try and get, just, just hear me here, when we try and get super technical about our situation, when we try and be sure that it checks the box, or we try to be sure that we are getting it just right, and that we're in the clear, and this is really a good thing, we're going back to the thoughts of a Pharisee. We're going back to this world of, do I, do I follow the right rules to be sure that what I'm doing is Okay without realizing what's going on in our own hearts. And that's often what happens as we jump to, is this okay, or did this happen, 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 and as long as these conditions were met, then I think you are good. But very often when that happens, we miss what's going on here, which is a breaking of covenant, a desire to tap out, get out of a marriage. The fact that we have found what God is doing together is not good enough for us. And so the effect of our heart 
often goes unchecked as we go through it. So I've asked this question to people who have come in for counseling before to me, and uh, maybe this is a remarriage, and I'll ask a question like this. What role did you play in the dissolution of your first marriage? What, what, did you, what, what do you own about it? So that there isn't like this, well, no, zero percent. Zero percent. My spouse was crazy. They were just crazy. I did nothing wrong. And so I'll ask that question. What role did you play in the dissolution of your last marriage? Because they're sitting in the room with me and they're curious about marriage. I go, well, what did you do? What, was, what, was, what part did you play in this? How did sin and selfishness affect you as you were going down this road? When did you give up? When did you get tired? I have yet to find, it might exist, I have yet to find the person who after some prodding doesn't finally say something about where they've messed up in the process as well. And I think that's important as we talk about any, any relationship, any marriage relationship, is because our hearts are deceptive. And they are prone to self-defend. And to make us look right, look better than bring down the other person. And so if we get out the report card and we start to lay out all the ways that we were better than another, what do we start to do? We become the Pharisee that Jesus is pushing on here to say, this is not what you need to be doing. It's not how you need to be thinking about it. If our concern is following the external rules to be sure that we're good, We are getting a righteousness like the scribes and the Pharisees. We are not getting a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus' concern is exceeding in this. So let's read his next statement in verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, there's a lot here, so I'll just try to say it like this. Uh, Any divorce except for immorality or sexual immorality results in more sin. It results in more sin. It keeps going. It doesn't just cut it off. So a lot has been made of a famous, the famous exception clause. It shows up in Matthew, does not show up in Mark, and it does not show up in Luke. And so we have this phrase thrown in, except for sexual immorality. And the word itself is rather broad. The, the definition of that word, immorality, porneia, except for that. So we get this really broad word that Jesus uses, or that Jesus doesn't use it, that, that as they're writing it in Greek comes, porneia. And we go, now we have this broad word to define an exception, and we shouldn't, I don't feel like we need to define it really broadly. So let's just go through, let's remind ourselves of where we have been in the context. Jesus has already said that you need a different kind of righteousness. That's how we kind of enter into all these statements. That was earlier in Matthew 5. He then picks specific examples of the law and how we feel like we're doing good. We got it together. I haven't murdered, haven't uh, divorced haven't been this, haven't been that. So all these examples of ways that we feel like we've checked the box. And then he pushes us beyond that to show the heart that we are actually all outside of obedience. All of us. We all, we're all outside of what should be and that we need something else. So he's challenging the hearts of the hearers to realize that they don't measure up. And so when it comes to divorce, it's the same idea. But he doesn't have, like he has in other passages, this kind of then application idea that sits there for us to go, oh, well then do this. You notice that that part's missing? 
in the other two passages we've gone through, it's not missing. Doesn't, he continues to give application on, so when you, so when you do it like this. He just leaves it. So I would say like this, in our world today, we have no-fault divorce. You can follow man's laws and pursue a no-fault divorce. But is there really such thing as a no-fault divorce? No. No. There's no such thing as a no-fault divorce. Maybe the legal term in our culture is such, but there's no such thing as a no-fault divorce. Because we understand that there is a, a consistent ethic in the way God has made this world. And there's a consistent need that we have, which is God's grace and our redemption, because we do not measure up to that consistent ethic ever. So God is the constant, we're the variable, and though we might think we're doing okay because we followed some channel or did some certain thing, we're still missing what's going on in the heart. So let's look at the exception clause in Matthew. Remember, we talk about abandonment in 1 Corinthians, that's an idea there. But in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, Jesus uses an exception. And there's a broad range of meaning behind this idea. And it has largely, largely and rather consistently been referred to as adultery. And our elder team would agree on this. That, 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 that right, adultery is kind of a subset of this broader idea. And so we would say, absolutely, adultery would fit that exception. And then there's all these other questions that, that spawn off of it. Well, what about a pornography addiction? Or uh, what about this? And uh, how many times of unfaithfulness equal, right? All those things that we start to kind of go to, to understand like weights on the scale, we have to stay away from weights on the scale and go to the heart. What is going on in me? What is going on with me? How am I feeling? How do I walk in obedience through this situation? And adultery makes sense as the larger idea here because there's a significant breaking of a marriage covenant through an act of adultery, a betrayal that happens through an act of adultery. So Jesus, and let's not forget that at this time he's speaking to men, says that divorce for some flippant reason and subsequent remarriage Put your wife in a terrible situation. In a terrible situation. Because you have now pursued divorce for a reason that does not fit the tight box that has been painted. And you seem to be okay with it. And so, in a sense, and this is how he gets in Mark, that really, your marriage is still going on still exists. You do, you, like, like, so when you do this, you're breaking this relationship legally, but you're not breaking the covenant that God has joined together. You're not doing that. And, and man does not have the ability to declare undone what God has declared done. And so we can't just say, oh, we're good. We got it. We'll just, we'll just go ahead and write the paper out, and we're good. And so he's saying, in this instance, when you pursue divorce, if you, didn't, if, if you didn't follow this instance, then you are now causing your spouse to commit adultery. And if you remarry somebody under the same situation, you too are doing it. Well, that's precarious. Causes lots of problems, doesn't it? for people, and for hearts, and for families, and for situations that abound. 
causes significant problems. Now, it'd be very easy, and we wish we could sometimes just kind of ostrich this verse and stick our heads in the sands and go, we're good, let's just go ahead and ignore it. Uh, you know, let's just, let's just buckle down and let's just focus on being nice and liking each other and just kind of being cool with whatever. That would be, that would be fun. Not really. But we have to look at what Jesus said. And we have to look at what God has designed. And notice here, even in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does not say, then you must. If this happens, then you must. The language is more, if this happens, then you could. But not you must. Matthew 19 gives us more reasoning into that. that, that Jesus fills out the thinking more than just like he does in these two verses. Matthew 19, verse 3, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for, what, what's he say? Any cause, which would be more of that first school that we talked about, right? Hillel, like, hey, if there's just something wrong that you don't like, just divorce. He answered, Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one? So what is he saying? Hey, you know how God created the world. You know what exists. Don't you understand that? So they're no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It's the last thing I say in my, in my uh, weddings I do before I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. It's like my last phrase. They said to him, because they're smart people, well, then why did Moses, listen to what he says, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Why were we then commanded to do this? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, and what word does Jesus use? Allowed. It is because of your hardness of heart, Moses, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Then he goes back to the phrase that we just read in Matthew 5, 32. But there's that fuller idea, the theological reasoning that Jesus then provides. From the beginning, God had created a design and his expectation was to keep the design to remain in what God had created. And if, in fact, we are looking to get out of our marriage, then it could mean that our heart has become stone cold toward our spouse. Once we start to go down that road, it just, we just turn into petrified hearts. Once we start to give our mind over to it, and our thoughts over to it, and our internet browsing over to it, and our conversations over to it, once we trek down that road, and I watch it happen, I mean, you can be like on what feels like cloud nine in your marriage on Monday, and then by Friday you're like, we're done. We're done. And that's what happens when you attach the success of your marriage to how you're currently feeling versus what is abiding, what is lasting. And I've seen this situation numerous times. Sexual sin, in particular, ruins many marriages. And both spouses sort of give up. 
They go, oh, I'm just so glad I can just finally be done with this. The husband doesn't pursue reconciliation. The wife doesn't pursue reconciliation. They kind of just give up and wait for the other to pursue some type of more serious sinning so that they feel like they're now justified to leave. That's the heart problem that we all have. Been married 50 years, still have it. Married 40 years, still have it. Married 30 years, still have it. Married 20 years, still have it. Married 10 years, still have it. Married 10 days, still have it. The selfish desire to make your marriage about your needs, your wants, and when those things are done, you will leave and you will find some type of way to twist the scriptures, to wring out of it the reason you can do what you want while the entire time missing what God has written and what his, I would even say, standard, the bar that he set actually is. So though God knew that there would be a world in, with divorce, that was not in God's original design. Just imagine that Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. I know we can't really imagine that, but just for a second. Just imagine that hadn't happened. Do you think one day they would have just woken up and be like, hey, let's be done with this. Let's be done with this, right? The inclination to cast aside a spouse does not come from God. To tap out and to leave does not come from God. It's not like God just puts that idea and you goes, hey, here's a good idea. Leave your marriage. It comes from here. And it needs a fixing that doesn't come from here. So then what do we do with all that? Because Jesus has put a significant challenge before us. We now realize we haven't measured up. We haven't done it. We've promoted it for the wrong reasons. We've given counsel that might have been bad. We might even realize that now. that We've given bad advice to friends. I don't recall a time, it might exist, I didn't list them all, I don't recall a time that I've ever been in a situation, or I have pastors who have ever been in a situation where they've counseled to divorce. Um, We might have counseled to separate for a season and pursue reconciliation. We certainly would counsel to get out of a harmful, abusive situation, Uh, but we have not been in a spot at this point, I'm thinking about 11 years, a lot to think through. I don't think there's a time where, where I or others have said, hey, this. I do have pastoral regrets on what I've kind of given a thumbs up to. Uh, you know, it's like, like, well, I didn't say it was okay, but I didn't say it wasn't okay, that kind of stuff. And so I think, how do we then live with this world that we have, hearing what Jesus has taught and knowing that we don't measure up, and that even if we do measure up externally because we're still married, we got all kinds of stuff going up in here that is messing with it. And this is, I just think, what I would say. We have to, and this is for children, youth, singles, marrieds, unmarried, divorce, whatever category you fit into, everybody in this room, we need to approach marriage with God's design in mind. Like, let's start with that. Let's not start with what the world gives us and then try to build up from that. Let's start with what the Lord has said and then go from there. Because when we try to build up from our experience, or we try to build up with our piecemeal theology of divorce and or remarriage, we try to build with that stack, we get into kind of a really funky spot. So let's go, okay, well, what was God's design? 
What was God's intent? Let's do that, and then let's go from there. So I want to give us uh, just three ideas. First is that we need to consider marriage seriously. When I counsel couples, I say, why do you want to marry this person? Who you marry is the second most important decision you will make in your entire life. So why this person? If you didn't have to marry them, but you could get all the tax benefits of marriage, why would you still marry them? Oh, I don't know if I would. Why is that? I'm always kind of poke at how they view marriage and what's going on. This is not something that we do just because it's culturally convenient. This is not something that we pursue because it helps us on our taxes. We do this, pursue marriage, because it is something that God has given to the world to show the world who he is. And so we show the relationship between Christ and the church to the world through the vehicle of marriage. Not exclusively, but uniquely in that relationship between husband and wife. Ephesians chapter 5 would tell us as much. And so we need to take it seriously. We also need to approach marriage humbly. Because if Jesus has revealed anything thus far in Matthew chapter 5, he has revealed to us that we need his grace and his sustaining power. I'm humbled by believers who I sit with and perhaps they're remarried and they go, I blew it. I blew it. I, I, I was weak, and I just, I gave up. And I'm, I will be one, even with people to go, have you talked to your previous spouse? Have you confessed your sin? Have you said, I'm sorry? And I've heard stories of that. Where you kind of get into a situation that you can't undo, right? Because it's like, well, now we got to do like two divorces and then do a remarriage here. And now that one's a mess, right? Like, again, it's trying to put weights on the scale. But there are things you can do. And this has happened before where somebody had to just say to his ex-wife, I'm sorry. I did that. And I caused this. And, and there are parts of it I can't fix now. Because I did that. It might take that. It might take going to your ex-spouse and saying, I blew it. I did not fight. And that's on me. And as much as you're able to forgive me, I ask you to forgive me. As much as you can, we can correct what we can correct, would you please do that for me? As believers in Christ, can't we do that? Can't we do that with freedom? That if it's not harmful, if it's not going to do something incredibly bizarre, that we could just walk humbly to somebody and say, you know what, the Lord has shown me that I've sinned against him far greater than I even know. But I did this, and it hurt. Or to go to your children and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did this. I'm sorry that we're going through this. Even if that happened 15 years ago, to go to your children and say, How did I hurt you? That's the humility that realizing how far all of us have come from the Lord can do for us. To be able to walk towards them and say, will you forgive me for this? Will you forgive me for this? And even though you might not be able to right every wrong, what that often can produce in people can be so healing. 
because they're able to go. It's like you can breathe again. Okay, I've heard it. And I know we can't redo, make up for, change that. But now we can walk differently, openly, because we've been humbled by our own sin and sinfulness and need for grace, and we've received it, and we can go to somebody else and ask the same. Finally, I think we need to approach marriage repentantly. Meaning, first, have you gone to the Lord and asked forgiveness for the ways that you have failed in your marriage? Even if you're currently married. You just, do you regularly go through to the Lord and ask his forgiveness? Remember 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. So if we don't have a daily habit of repenting, asking forgiveness, asking God to, for whatever it happened, I shared before, I try to do this daily in the morning, is just ask forgiveness for things. Ways that my heart has failed, ways in my words that I failed, ways that I have believed stupid things or acted in stupid ways. So to go to the Lord and regularly repent of the ways that we have fallen short. But also, the same habit is really good in your marriage. To regularly go to your spouse and to confess the ways that you failed. And I don't mean confess the ways that you failed in hopes that he or she will then turn around and confess the ways that they too have failed. That's, that's that fake kind of manipulative confession that no one needs to have a part in. Right? So we need to be able to go to somebody and say, I failed you. And when they say, I forgive you, and they respond with nothing else, you can be okay with that. That you don't wait for the other person. Like You, you don't use asking forgiveness as a tool for manipulation to hear what you want to hear from your spouse. If your spouse has hurt you, then you go to them and you say, when you said this, you hurt me. You don't say, hey, I'm very sorry that I hurt you with my words. And just wait. You go and you own you. And you leave the rest to the Lord. And if there's still pain or offense or harm or hurt that's done, you have to let the Lord Jesus fill in those gaps for you. If there's things that are still empty or hollow that don't feel reconciled, still pray for it, but let the Lord meet you there. Because no human relationship will provide for you the security, safety, confidence, forgiveness, grace, and restoration that the relationship you have with Jesus can. So you can't seek it from your spouse, and you can't seek it from your kids, and you can't even seek it from your church. You have to find it in the Lord. And that gives you the confidence with which to stand. Ask forgiveness. Be serious joyful and gracious as you pursue God's design for your marriage. So remember the good life. A life that is focused on living out God's ways. In that world, in that world, divorce doesn't exist. In the way of the kingdom. It doesn't exist. In our world, it does And as we hear time and time again what Jesus is teaching versus where we are, every time, every week, every saying, we're confronted with falling short. And when you fall short, you don't hide in embarrassment, but you just bow. 
And you ask forgiveness from the one who can give it. And you don't, you don't look around and go, I'm not good enough, I wish I were. You say, I'm not good enough, and you are. I didn't do this right, but you love me. I'm not perfect. We always say, I'm not, I'm not perfect. Correct. That doesn't matter, right? No one's perfect, but even unbelievers would say no one's perfect. The thing is, we realize we're not perfect as believers, but there's one who is, right? Like that, that's what we look to, and that's our ideal. So, so Genesis, I don't want you guys to set your mind and heart and eyes on the way the world does marriage. I want you to set it on the way the Lord would have it be done. And work back from there. And if you go, well, man, I didn't, I didn't know this at first. That's okay. Ask forgiveness and keep going. Right? Don't undo. Don't, don't be like, well, yeah, I just can't. I'm, I'm just done for. Ask forgiveness and keep moving. If you're in a situation that, that, that you wish you weren't in, go before the Lord and ask for his wisdom. How do, I, how do I do this? If you've heart hurt somebody, ask for forgiveness. It is there for you. God's expectation is higher than our own, but his grace is also bigger than anything we can think of. So when we fail in our marriages, we need to recognize that we have come short of what God wants, but that Jesus also stands ready to forgive. And it's that grace that everyone in here needs. He is always our example. He is the example of the one who has always been faithful to his bride. He provides the way for us to pursue our marriage differently, his spirit, because he has been that. 